0: You're listening to the latest sermon from Our Saviour Lutheran Church in Fareham. For more information about Our Saviour Lutheran Church, visit our website at www.oslc.org.uk. OSLC.org.uk. May God bless you richly through His Word. The Holy Gospel according to Saint Luke, the eleventh chapter. Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marvelled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. To you, to thee, o Grace to you, peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father sanctifies in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen.) Amen the finger of God it's a, an interesting expression given that God is a spirit and though God the Son was incarnate and took on our flesh and he had as far as we know ten toes and ten fingers when we say God's finger at work we are clearly and obviously looking at a A a metaphor, a figurative expression. We have these uh, references to God's body parts littered throughout the Old Testament. We hear of God's heart, we hear of God's nostrils, God's ears, and we have God's right hand and we have God's mighty arm. In fact, We learn repeatedly as we read through the Old Testament that it is God's right hand, his his outstretched arm that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And how did the outstretched arm, the right hand of God, how did it operate? Well, with power. It was by the outstretched arm of God that the sea, Red Sea, was open up for the people of Israel to walk through, but the armies of Pharaoh drowned. The expression doesn't occur in the Old Testament, and you can almost picture Jesus, uh, God rather, throwing a mighty punch with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand, like a boxing champion knocking out the enemy. Because when God stretched out his arm, mighty and powerful things took place. And when God is at work, that's what he sometimes does. He exercises power, impressive power. And we see this frequently in the Old Testament when nature is interfered with, as it were, by God. In the parting of the Red Sea, in the flooding of the world in the days of Noah, in the fire and the sulphur that fell upon God, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. There was thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, such that the people were filled with fear. And not only were they filled with fear, but God told them that that was quite right too. They should be and they should stay off the mount. Jesus, too, once or twice, exercises this sort of mighty power, although when Jesus exercised that mighty power, things didn't get noisier, they got quieter. Storms were calmed, for example. And this work, power of God at work to bring about his righteousness, to defeat his enemies, to rescue his people, is still at work for us. We don't necessarily see it or notice it. But that's only because we are so low down in our earthly place, in our tiny little spot in God's universe, that we don't see the works of God. You'd have to zoom right out and have a picture of what is really happening and perhaps have a better time scale than is uh, afforded to us in the span of a human life. Sometimes we see this when we look back on things. In things that seem maybe to normal people, uh, to uh, unenlightened eyes, eyes unenlightened by faith, we see coincidences, things that just happen to happen in a particular way at a particular time that leads to X, Y, and Z. So we know, for example, from the Old Testament that in the 11th 10th and 9th centuries, the kingdom of Israel was established, especially in the times of David and Solomon, and it expanded greatly. Now, if you study history from outside the Bible and have additional information, you will know that that period of time saw all the great empires of the time retreat and collapse. In Egypt, the Hittite Empire, uh, in the north of Israel, and the Mesopotamian Empires. God created a vacuum the size of the Middle East into which he could establish the kingdom of Israel. Coincidence or just a mighty arm and hand of God creating space, punching a hole in the Middle East so that there would be space for the kingdom of David and his sons and there could be, I could spend a very long time now giving examples both biblical and subsequent examples of how things have come together in a way that only naive, ignorant and unbelieving people would call coincidences And our faith recognizes God at work, shaping history powerfully and forcefully so that his will be done, so that his kingdom be established and enlarged. So what does God's finger do then? If that's when God throws a punch, what does it do when God sticks his finger into things? In fact, we are told a few times of God using his fingers. So, for example, in the Psalms, we have a reference to God using his fingers at creation. What's the difference between using an arm? or a fist and using a finger? I think the simple answer is that we do things that are intricate and require care and detailed attention. That we stop using our palms and our fists and our arms and we begin to employ our fingertips. It's one of the things that happens when you grow from a little child with no fine motor skills and you learn to Use your fingers, and you can start to do things that look less than childish. You Look at the painting done by a three year old, however artistically gifted, and compare that same child in 10 or 20 years' time, and you can see the difference. And the difference is that we're no longer using the whole arm to draw mummy, but we're now using little fingers and fine details and movements. And so, when God is using his finger, We can almost like see God is doing intricate work that requires careful attention to detail and to divide things out and make sure that everything is just so in the right place. And so we have God's right hand and his outstretched arm leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. But when it comes to the plagues, the 10 plagues against the Egyptians, first we have these Plagues that even the magicians of Egypt can replicate. But by the time we come to the create to the production of gnats in uh, the reading that we heard first, the magicians were powerless. Now I'm not going to we're not going to detain ourselves today to say well, what is about what's the difference between frogs and gnats that magicians can produce frogs but not gnats, maybe that's for another time. But the point is that something so intricate and fine was being wrought by God that mere demonic powers in the use of magicians could not replicate it. Of course, there is a, a, a pun going on here as well, which we don't catch in English, but uh, the Jewish... Uh, people of Jesus' time as we heard in the gospel referred to Satan as Beelzebul which literally translates Lord of the Flies after the fourth plague which is a, 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 a pun on one of uh, the names of the Canaanite gods just change one letter and the, the chief of the gods becomes Lord of the Flies he's in charge of all the swarming Annoying little black things that you can squat if you're quick enough. But God was doing something that required skill and intricate detail. And what was that work what was that work in service of? It was in service of wearing down with real and kind of really annoying plague, really kind of frustrating, and yet. In itself, reasonably harmless plague of gnats. It made everybody itch and hurt. It didn't kill anybody, but it made everybody itch and hurt. Like an annoying older brother or sister going to a younger sibling and just poking them. To make them really annoyed. You know, no bruises, no broken bones, nobody bled. But it is enough to drive you insane. And this is God going to his enemies saying, you think you can fight me? Try that, try that, try that. How does that feel? In other words, he was mocking his enemies, holding them in derision. And enraged as Pharaoh was, he was unmoved. He had a great tragedy of having a hard heart. If only God could have just pushed him a little harder and woken him up from the slumber of his um, impenitence. And the people of Israel would have been freed and the people of Egypt would have been spared. But he did not respond to the prod of God's finger. He needed a full swing, a fully swung punch to knock him out of the way. And he with lost his son And so did every Egyptian household and the army drowned. Because he would not repent when God came to him with gentle but precise force. Or if you you like to think of another image, it's like a a skilled physician putting the finger on just right for saying, does that hurt? And instead of saying, yes, it does heal me, he flinched away and continued to rail against him who could have saved him and his people. And now, what Jesus says in our gospel is that his casting out of demons is the finger of God at work. Which is to say that this is when Jesus came to do what he came to do, when he came to carry out his ministry. This is God coming in, and he wasn't swinging about wildly, knocking people over, destroying stuff. He wasn't there to shake mountains and split seas or rain, fire and sulphur on the earth. He came to do intricate and careful work that required precision and refinement. He himself later on speaks of the um, harvest of souls as being the separating, separating it out of wheat and chaff. You have to have the right conditions and the good technique to make sure that you don't lose anything that is precious and needs to be eaten. And that you don't feed to people things that deserve to be burnt. The chaff in one pile, the wheat in the other pile. And you don't want to burn any wheat and you don't want to eat any chaff. It's an intricate and careful work. It is what St. Paul refers to in his letter to Timothy as rightly dividing the word of God. Because this finger of God that Jesus speaks of is none other Than the Word of God. Scripture in many places speaks of the Word of God in this way, most famously in Hebrews 4, as being like a double edged sword that penetrates into the finest cracks and distinguishes between soul and spirit, goes into between bone and marrow. It's so sharply tuned that it finds all the right places. And go and, and distinguishes that which needs to be distinguished. In the Lutheran tradition, we speak of the distinction between law and gospel, for example. We distinguish between what needs to be said when people need to, be know, need to know their sin and God's expectations of us. and we separate that sharply and clearly from what we need to say to people so that they might know how the forgiveness of sins comes about. There are two different things, and they must be carefully and intricately dealt with. So that you don't, if you like, mix the colors and ruin the whole. The Holy Spirit of God works through the Word of God. And the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is a powerful weapon. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, we have a a picture of the battle between Christ and Satan and their respective armies. And what comes out of Christ's mouth is a sword. And with that one word of his, of his mouth, he slays all the enemies. That's when Jesus is at war with the demons. And that battle is being fought here. He casts out demons. And how does, he cast, how does Jesus cast out demons? Without exception, he casts out demons simply by telling them to leave. To Go. The word go, when spoken with, by Jesus against demons, is powerful enough that they have no option but to go. And when they negotiate, the one time they negotiate with Jesus, in the case of Legion, and say, you know, send it, you know don't send us back to the abyss, send us to the pigs, how does that turn out for anybody? They're all drowned. So they avoid one abyss and they end up in another. Jesus says, go, and they go. This is the power of God's word. Now, if you, if you ever contemplate or even encounter the evil forces of this world, whether the visible ones or invisible ones, you may well be filled with foreboding or fear. You look at what's happening in the world and think, you know, who, what will come of us? What will come of us with all these things arrayed against us? The power that the evil one seems to have over the world and our little churches in our, in our godless nation and all these forces of war and famine and all kinds of nastiness, as well as the spiritual deceptions that sweep across nations. The millions and billions of people who follow after falsehoods and lies. And to all of this, Jesus says, when he comes to deal with this, it's like he's he's just operating his finger it's no trouble to him at all his finger has more strength in it than all the evil of the world and the kingdom of Satan put together and with one word he will slay all the evil ones and already with words he casts out demons this is why in the Traditional uh, Lutheran baptismal service, and it's not just in the Lutheran baptismal service, but the baptismal service of the Western Church, which was preserved in us. Their part of the, um, baptis- the pre-baptismal part of the service always in- included an in exorcism. Depart, you evil spirit, and make room for the spirit of God. Depart, you evil spirit, and make room for the spirit of God. And with that word, because this is, these are, this is all being done in the name of Jesus, with those simple words, you might, may or may not see or hear anything. One of our children happened to cry out at just that moment, said, ah, oh, that's the evil spirit leaving, presumably. Uh, but whether or not you hear or see things, when those words are spoken, you be confident that when that child is baptised, there's loads of room for the Holy Spirit. All evil spirits have <laughs> departed. Why? Because the word of Jesus finger of Jesus, push them out knock them out all together but he uses his finger rather than his fist so because he wants to cast out that which doesn't belong while preserving us he works with gentleness with us who are frail children of flesh and at the same time that same gentle force that preserves and saves us is powerful enough to cast out sin to expel Satan and all his minions And this is why Jesus concludes this whole passage with those words. When somebody cried out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed, which only Luke uh, records, if I remember correctly, in his gospel, who is the same Luke who had recorded the words of the angel to Mary. Greetings, O favoured one. And the words of Elizabeth to Mary, Blessed are you amongst women. And ever since then, Christians have referred to Mary as blessed, the blessed Virgin Mary, because she had that privileged, unique privilege of bearing in her womb the Son of God in the flesh. And yet, by comparison, Jesus, when somebody says, Blessed is the womb that bore you in breast at which you nursed, yes, but Jesus actually. Blessed rather are those who hear the word and keep it. Because the key hearing and the, uh, of the word of God and keeping the word of God, that is to say, believing it and holding on to his promises and applying it to our lives daily, is an eternal blessing. You might think that if you only had the opportunity to touch Jesus or to sit at his feet like Mary or uh, let alone be uh, the one who, at whose, in whose lap Jesus as a child sat. That it would, you, you would somehow be closer to him, you could know him better. If only you could walk in the garden with him, you know, arm in arm and have a conversation and really get to know Jesus, how blessed that would be. And Jesus knew actually the greatest blessing is to hear the word of God and keep it. Because when we hear the word of God and keep it, it's not simply that we are forming an impression of Jesus. We are getting to know him from our perspective and and we kind of hear his voice and, and see his face and we can study the contours of his movements or whatever. That all emanates from us. We are interpreting Jesus, if you like. But when we hear the word of God and keep it, then God is doing his work in us and creating in us those impressions that he wants us to have for our salvation. In the word of God, Jesus comes and is present with us and he does what he does regardless of what we feel or regardless of what we or what impressions we are forming. As an um, elderly gentleman once said to me in a cafe down the road when we were having a conversation and he discovered that I studied theology and said, yeah, theology, it's got its place, but it's not so much that we study God. What really matters is that God studies us is what God does with his word in us is far more important than what we do with it. Now, of course, what we do with the word of God is that we hear the word of God and keep it. But that means to say that this is ultimately a passive process. Jesus is the one who does the work. When we hear the word of God, when we keep the word of God, it's not that Jesus has done his bit and now we're doing our bit with it, but rather we continue to be worked on by Jesus. He has cast out from you every evil power and force. There's just one that he's left in place for now. He has allowed your sinful nature to remain because he doesn't want to kill you yet. You will die, don't worry, unless he returns first. All in good time. But the point is that he doesn't want to be the one who kills you. He is the one who wants to save you. And so he allows your sinful flesh to remain because he wants your flesh to be preserved... So that he might continue to work on you, to be be redeeming you, to be cleansing you, to empowering you, to be emptying you of yourself, insofar as you stand in the way of the truth and of righteousness of Jesus, and to be be filling you with himself. So that when your sinful flesh eventually has its way and takes all of you down into the grave, Jesus can then say, One more thing I want to do with my finger and raise you from the dead. Without sin, without corruption, without mortality. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who simply place themselves in the way of Jesus' finger, of the sword that comes out of his mouth, the sword of the Spirit. Because when we hear the word of God and keep it, then we know that the spirit of God himself, the third person of the Trinity, is operating within us. And they, in that, when that happens, when that is the case, we can stop disregarding our own impressions. We can stop disregarding the impressions that we have of ourselves, of the world, of the church. And simply trust that when God is at work and He's doing His intricate work of surgically dealing with your sin and plentifully filling you with His Spirit, he, is, he knows what He's doing. He is a skilled master who is creating in you the life that He desires you to have in the way and through the processes He wants you to have. He might lead you to high mountains and give you breathtaking vistas and, and uplifting experiences. He may lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He may give you laughter. He may give you tears. But you will be blessed. And he will bless you through, through each of those. This calls us. Um, John writes in his revelation repeatedly. This calls for the perseverance of the saints. But it's not a perseverance in our own strength. But rather a patient waiting upon God, a patient receiving of what he wishes to give to us through his holy word. So that if any unclean spirit comes knocking on our door, see if there's re-entry so that he might come with his mates and make a bigger mess than he did last time, he will not find the house empty, but rather full of the uh, the fruit of the Spirit, which the Spirit himself produces in us by Christ's holy word. Satan ultimately is in charge of flies and gnats. That's all he can do. He may seem ominous to us. Sin might seem terrifying to us. But these things are powerless, pathetic and weak before our great conqueror, our prize fighter, Jesus Christ, who has taken us captive to himself, not in order to subdue us, but in order to lavish us with his love, which is ours today and to all eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.